This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to the Money and Markets podcast. This week, we've got a lot to cover from the latest inflation update to looking ahead at next week's interest rate and mini budget news. We're also going to be looking at the announcement that renowned investor Terry Smith is closing the Emerging Markets Fund that he launched eight years ago. Joining me today is Dan Coatesworth. Hi there. We've also got Tom Selby on the show this week talking about the great unretirement with over 65s returning to work after the exodus in COVID. And I've got a great interview about how you can invest in cybersecurity as more companies look to protect themselves from being hacked. And I'll be looking at the potential tax sting to rising interest rates that savers need to watch out for, as well as some good news for people who want to save in a green way and also get a return on their money. But first, Dan, let's dive into markets this week. So we'll start with the latest inflation figures, which came out today for August and showed a surprise dip, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, there was some good and bad news in the latest UK inflation figures. So the headline rate was 9.9% for August. Now, obviously, that's good because that's below the 10.1% we saw in July. And I think that's driven by falling petrol prices. But the bad news is that other things like food prices keep going up. Now, we've got the energy price guarantee, so that should prevent a sort of a winter surge in prices. And also, some of these commodity prices are falling, and that should sort of start to help ease input costs for companies. But at the end of the day, inflation is still high, and it could stay this way for some time. So I think that you know, particularly people in lower income, they're going to be in a tricky position for a while. And businesses are still going to have to find ways to cut costs. And unfortunately, that one of those ways could be job losses. So I still think we're in a very sort of fragile period. And also means that interest rates are likely to keep going up if inflation stays high, because obviously central banks will push up rates. They're trying to combat inflation. So all of this together means that whilst we had a slight dip in headline figure, uh, it's not quite time for celebration yet. And so how did markets react to that news? Did they take it as a slightly positive sign that it hadn't risen further? Well, you know, initially UK markets dipped on this news, but I think you need to look at that in the context of what happened the previous day on Wall Street. So if you go back to Tuesday, there was a really big sell-off in US equities, including a 5% drop in the NASDAQ. So this was triggered by a mixture of in general, it's sort of investor jitters. And, and the fact things like food, house, and medical costs continue to rise. So we, we saw some very strange behavior at the start of the week where the VIX measure of equity market volatility was actually moving up at the same time the market was moving up. And typically, they tend to move in opposite directions. So um, what we saw, we had uh, the, the US inflation figures were out earlier this week. 8.3% um, figure recording for August. That was higher than the 8.1% expected by economists. So um, investors did not like that at all. And so we saw this big sell-off. And of course, what happens in the US tends to have a sort of a knock-on effect. And that's why we saw weak figures on UK and European markets on Wednesday. So uh, I think it, it, here we still have this big problem. So lots of uncertainty about corporate profits. So um, we've seen lots of companies come out with 
you know, downgrading the earnings guidance. And I think if there's more bad news to come on this front, then you know, there's an argument to say that share prices could stay under pressure or certainly go through some very sort of choppy times. Now, the FTSE 100 in the UK has been one of the most stable places to invest this year. But but actually, you know, even that isn't um, sort of... It, Immune from what's going on, uh, if we're starting to see falling energy prices, of course, some of these big energy and commodity producers on the UK market, they will sort of fall back as well. Um, and so really, I think the, the message I would I would sort of perhaps give here is that you know, arguably, if you can, stay invested. Don't get spooked by what's going on. Lots of people look back in history and say, actually, the best time to be um, making investments is when everyone else is sort of scared and fearful. And, you know, you could argue that now is one of those times when, you know, appetite is is quite sort of weak for investing. But if you have a long-term horizon, you might find some interesting opportunities at the moment. And I guess the other big bit of market news this week was the decision by renowned investor Terry Smith to close the Fund Smith Emerging Markets Trust, which had the catchy acronym of FEET, but was launched eight years ago. And it's had pretty disappointing performance, Dan, hasn't it? Is that why it's sharp? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, Terry Smith, who is the, the sort of... Um, the owner of Fundsmith, the asset management business, and he's a lead fund manager on the Fundsmith Equity Fund. He, you know, he stepped down as manager for the, the Emerging Equities Trust about three years ago, um, and since then, it's sort of it, it has it's had a couple of good years, but generally, it's pretty disappointing. And he's come out and said, "Yeah, overall, since launch, it's not done what we thought. So actually, we think the best thing to do is just to liquidate the assets." And we'll just we'll close it down. So, you know, arguably, you know, Fundsmith is, is probably Fundsmith Equity is probably the most popular fund on the market at the moment, and it has been for years because it's done incredibly well. To get rid of Fundsmith Emerging Equities Trust, it's almost like it's removing sort of the, the, the weak part of sort of the Fundsmith asset management business. But you know, I think I think he, I think he it's, that would be a tough decision to make to sort of come out and say sorry we're just going to shut it down. But but if you think about it, the Emerging Markets Equities Trust was set up to follow exactly the same process as the other funds which Fundsmith run, which includes the Smithson Investment Trust. So what they did was they looked at um, high quality cash generative businesses. Many of these were sort of the emerging market subsidiaries of big names like Nestle and Unilever. So it wasn't investing in sort of speculative startups with promise but no profit here. So I, I think what happened was it didn't. It initially said, "Well, we're not going to look at macroeconomic sort of factors. We're just going to look just at those individual companies." And so it's called a sort of a, a bottom-up basis for stock picking. But what happened was it suffered from having exposure to places like Nigeria and Egypt, where there was currency weakness. And also it came out a few years ago and said, well, actually, we overestimated a company's growth uh, prospects and we underestimated regulatory issues. So what it then did is said, well, you know, let's let's sort of potentially, you know, bring in some uh, different people running it, switch from being largely defensive to a more, def- more sort of a, a growth sort of spin on it. And actually it boosted its allocation to technology and healthcare sectors but actually, it did that just at the wrong time. And then we've seen in the last year that um, you know, people have gone off healthcare a bit and certainly have gone off tech stocks. And so um, I think just a, a succession of lots of bad timing and 
you know, just struggling. But I think, you know, it probably it's it's a bold decision to to close it down. But you know, you can you can understand why they're going to do it. I always find it interesting listening to fan managers and kind of heads of asset management talking about. Um, I don't know if failures feels like a too strong a word, but things that haven't gone right. It's quite interesting to listen to their analysis of it and and to talk quite honestly about where they went wrong because you quite, don't often hear that from fund managers, do you? No, definitely. And I think when you do hear someone do it, you should say, okay, this is that's a sign of a good good manager. No fund manager will get every investment decision right. And so there will be there will be some disappointments, and and if they can say you know this is what happened, this is what we thought would happen, this is what actually happened, this is what we're learning from it, it just shows that they're they're open to um, sort of always making improvements, and I think that's good rather than sort of just burying their head in the sand when things aren't working out, and um, and so it's good, and I think obviously you know funds with emerging markets trust was fairly small in terms of assets, um, com- certainly compared to the Fundsmith Equity Fund. But because it's been got a name attached to Terry Smith, you know, one of the UK's most famous investors, people are going to be looking at this closely and sort of they're going to be hoping, okay, does this mean that you know the, the big fund Smith equity fund has been making mistakes? Well, if you read the commentary that Terry Smith puts out on a regular basis, he will talk about stuff that's gone wrong. And I think it's um, you know, perhaps we'll put more pressure on him to 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 discuss these things um and say, you know, you know. Why did you do it? And what have you learned from it? And just quickly, if there are any listeners out there that have that are invested in this trust, what happens for them now? So it's just a proposal at the moment. And what you know what will happen is that um, if they get the, the go-ahead to liquidate it, and all that means is they try and sell the holdings that they have. Um, at the time of the announcement, the trust was trading about 13% below the value of its assets. So we've seen a sort of, already seen a sort of 10% jump in the share price because that's the market anticipating that it will be able to sell those holdings at or as close as possible to sort of market value. And then it will just return the cash to investors and it just gets wound up and the, and the shares will be delisted from the stock market. So fairly simple process. Um, and I think... It, in its favour is the fact that it invested in sort of perhaps the, the more liquid uh, names you might find in emerging markets because obviously there would be a risk with perhaps some other funds um, that they they invest in names that they just simply cannot sell quickly. But I think you know if you if you're investing in subsidiaries of Nestle and Unilever, I'm sure that you'll be able to find a buyer fairly quickly for those. And now we've got a big week for economic news next week. So after the death of the Queen, the Bank of England took the decision to delay the next decision on interest rates. So that should have been published on the 15th of September. Instead, they're going to reveal the latest decision next week on the 22nd of September. And what we're expecting to see then is another increase in interest rates, even though that inflation figure that we talked about earlier was um, lower than the previous month. I think what we're still expecting to see is a rise from the Bank of England. But the debate at the moment is about whether we'll see another half a percentage point rise like we did at the last meeting, or whether we will just see that quarter of a percentage point rise that we've seen before. So we've got that next Thursday. What we're also expecting to see next week is a 
budget or a mini budget or a fiscal update or however the new government wants to brand it. So this will be the new Prime Minister Liz Truss um, and the new Chancellor talking about some of their spending plans and talking about how they're going to implement some of the things that that Liz Truss talked about in her leadership campaign. We don't have a confirmed date for that yet, but lots of people have put their heads together and looked at the calendar of when Parliament is sitting, when they break again for party conference season, and the fact that Liz Truss talked about wanting to unveil her spending plans in September. And what everybody has landed on is that this will, this mini budget or fiscal update is likely to be also on the 22nd, so next Thursday, the same day as interest rates. So it's a big day. And in, in that update, we'll likely see more talk of the energy price guarantee that Liz Truss has already talked about, um, but also an update on some of those pledges that she made in her leadership campaign. So um, reversing the national insurance increase, tax cuts, all of those things will get much more detail. So definitely one to look out for. With more interest rate rises on the horizon, we often focus on the negative impact that will have on people with mortgages or debt. But it's actually great news for savers who are getting a better return on their money. And we're seeing a bit of a rate war in the market. And uh, so, you know, Laura, what was anything sort of what's the sort of the, the standout um, rates that we're seeing now? Yeah, so what we've seen is this big, like you say, this kind of rates war in the savings market. Now, it's not going to be from the kind of high street banks that you might have been banking with for a decade or two decades and you've left your money lingering in the account. What we're seeing is more kind of of these newer challenger banks, These some of the names you might not be so familiar with, but they're really competing to be top of the table in terms of the interest rate that they offer for savings accounts. And that's true with easy access savings accounts, but also fixed rate accounts. MoneyFacts came out with some data this week that showed that fixed rate savings account have risen to their highest level in a decade. Um, and so that's really good news for savers who've got cash. Obviously, I'm going to have the big caveat slash side note here that we've got to overlook the fact that these savings rates still aren't anywhere near inflation, which is still about 10%. So you're not going to get an inflation beating return from your cash savings. But it means that if you are holding cash, and you shop around and you switch accounts, you can get a much better deal. Uh, so what we're looking at now is about 2% for the average easy access savings account. Now, when we compare that to before December last year, which is when the Bank of England started hiking interest rates, at that point, the top easy, ac- easy access savings account was 0.65%. So that is a big increase in your money during that time. And one other rate increase that I wanted to flag that actually happened while we were off on our summer break, but I thought was worth mentioning is from NSNI, um, which I know lots of people are fans of um, and keen to hear about updates from them. So they had a green savings bond, which is effectively where the government is trying to raise money to put into green projects. Um, They launched this green savings bond, and it had a pretty disappointing interest rate when it was launched. They subsequently increased it and now they've increased it again so now um, it's a fixed rate and it's three percent over a three-year term now you can get more than that with a non-nsni product Um, so on the open market for a three-year bond you can get a higher rate than that but um, if you wanted your money to go towards kind of environmental and green causes, then you might decide that it's worth sacrificing some of the interest for that. And I think what's interesting is that since this bond launched, it's had successive interest rate rises to keep up with market rate rises. So obviously, 
if you're talking about higher rates across different savings products, surely there must be a potential tax hit here. Laura, is it, can you explain what's, what people might need to think about? Yeah, so I think it's um, important to flag. So I'm going to do a bit of kind of like techie stuff and then I'll explain why that's important. So um, the a while, a number of years ago, the personal savings allowance was introduced and that effectively gives you a tax break on any savings income you make. And it means that basic rate taxpayers get £1,000 a year of savings interest that they can earn tax-free and higher rate taxpayers get £500 of savings interest um, that they can earn each year before they have to pay tax on it. If you're an additional rate taxpayer, you don't get any allowance. Um, so that personal savings allowance was introduced in 2016. And what we saw at that point was lots of people then didn't bother saving in an ISA for their cash. So ISAs were obviously tax-free, but lots of people found that they didn't need an ISA because the level of their cash savings and the return they were getting on it meant that they were comfortably sitting within that new tax-free limit that you got from the personal savings allowance. But what we're seeing now is kind of a, a lot of different competing factors. For one, since that was launched in 2016, those allowances haven't been increased at all. So they've stayed at that £1,000 and £500. Um, what we're also seeing at the moment, as I just talked about, is that interest rates are rising. And so while we had very low interest rates and cash savers were getting very low returns on their cash, it meant that they could have a really large amount sitting in a cash account and not exceed those limits. However, as you're earning more interest on that savings, people are more likely to start hitting those limits. And on top of that, what we've got is that the um, income tax bans have been frozen and so that means that more and more people are being pushed from basic rate tax into higher rate tax which means that their allowance gets halved um, so all of those factors combined together mean that some people who haven't paid tax on their cash savings that aren't in an ISA since this allowance was introduced might this year actually suddenly realise wait a minute I'm going to be charged some tax on this or they might receive a bill from HMRC saying you exceeded your limit last year and we now need to claw this tax back so I think some figures that bring it to life are if a if a basic rate taxpayer was only earning 0.1% interest on their savings, which is what the base rate was in kind of November last year, they would have needed a million pounds in cash savings, not in an ISA account, to hit that £1,000 tax-free limit. So what we're looking at there is basically a tiny proportion of the population would have a million pounds in cash savings, not in ISAs. So that's not going to catch many people out. But if we now look at the fact that the top easy access savings account is about 2%, that means that that same taxpayer would only need to have £50,000 in cash savings, not in an ISA, to hit that £1,000 tax-free limit. And then if we think on top of that, that basic rate taxpayer might have had a pay rise that's pushed them into the higher rate tax bracket. And that means that their tax-free savings limit is halved. And so that means that they would only then need to have £25,000 in cash savings before they hit their new lower £500 limit, before they had to start paying tax on their savings. So it's kind of a wake-up call for a lot of savers where they need to look at, firstly, how much... Um, they've got sitting in cash accounts. Secondly, you want to optimise that and switch to the highest rate um, account that you can get. But then they also need to look at, okay, how much interest is that going to generate for me over the next year? And 
am I going to be hit with a tax bill? And then think about putting some of that money into um, tax efficient accounts, if that is the case. So we had some interesting figures out on employment rates this week, showing yet another drop in unemployment levels. The rate is now at the lowest level we've seen since 1974. One group that's been returning to work in a big way is the over 65s, although there was a small drop in the latest figures. So Tom Selby is here to explain more. So first, Tom, let's have some background to this. We've seen lots of older people leave the workforce during COVID, didn't we? Yes, Dan, that's that's right. So there was a big jump in over 65s exiting the workforce as COVID hit in the early part of 2020. So just before the national lockdown, there were just over 1.4 million over 65s in employment in the UK. That fell by somewhere in the region of 140,000 in the months after COVID. So if you look at the employment rate, so the proportion of over 65s in employment, that also fell quite a bit. So that was down from 11.7% pre-COVID to around 10.5% post-COVID. Hard to pinpoint exactly why that might be the case. I think some of those people may have been exiting the the labour market on a voluntary basis, some less voluntary. So there'll be some unemployment in there. There'll have been, I suspect, some people who were unwilling to work due to the risks associated with COVID, as well as those who were unable to work. And there'll have also been some people who simply chose to retire from the workforce, perhaps earlier than they planned to before, because they might have had a reassessment of their, their life and their retirement plans and decided after, as, as you know, I think a lot of people assessed their lives as, as COVID was hitting and decided that actually working was perhaps less important to them than it, than it was before the pandemic hit. But obviously, since then, we have seen over 65s return to work. And Mm. is there a particular sort of driver behind that? Yeah, yeah, so that's right. So in 2022, we've seen a a pretty substantial rise in the number of people over 65s who are are working. So well over 100,000 over 65s added to the uh, over 65s added to the labour market since the start of the year. Um, a big rise initially in the year. We've seen a drop off recently, as you mentioned at the top. Um, hard to know at this stage exactly what has spurred that, but the cost of living crisis and rising inflation is likely to be a significant factor. I suspect plenty of people will have found that they've retired possibly earlier than they were planning to and have found that their pension either doesn't provide enough money to sustain their standard of living in a world where inflation is running at somewhere in the region of 10% or are perhaps in drawdown and have their pot invested and are worried about running their pot down. So one of the obvious solutions to that is to take up some work, perhaps part-time work, and use that income to supplement the income that you're getting from your your retirement pot. And and that's supported by the fact that the, the ONS says most over 65s are gaining employment on a, a part-time basis. So between April and June this year, um, those aged 65 and over in employment worked an average of just shy of 22 hours per week. So there, there's going to be a lot of people here who were perhaps taking a pension income, maybe a combination of drawdown and estate pension. Some people might have annuities who are finding that inflation is a challenge. And so they're deciding to come back to the, to the, to the labour market, work a few hours to make sure they've got enough money to, to make ends meet as, as costs are rising. 
But as we uh, mentioned earlier, the latest figures show that there's been a bit of a drop off in comparison mm. to earlier this year. So do you think that that's a trend that's going to continue? Yeah, interesting one. We'll have to wait and see, I think is, is the honest answer. You would you would naturally expect that given we've we've seen the announcement of an energy price cap and obviously need all the details on that. And, and there's a general expectation that as a result of that living costs are going to drop or certainly not increase as fast as perhaps we were expecting to over the coming months. That may have an impact on those who, certainly those who've been forced to go back to work who wouldn't have done so by choice. Um, on the other side of the coin, it's worth remembering that we've only really built back post-COVID the over 60s, the, the over 65s employment losses that we saw during the COVID period. So we're kind of back to, to square one in terms of where we were in terms of pre-COVID employment, the pre-COVID employment picture for over 65. So it's, it's a pretty rocky and blurred picture in the labour market generally. And I think what we see in the over 65s will partly depend on that wider labour market. There are still job vacancies out there, and I suspect the government will be hoping older people can form part of the solution in filling those vacancies, as well as, of course, people from other age groups as well. Thanks a lot for that, Tom. And finally, for this week, we've got our investing interview. So today, we're looking at the big trend for companies to ramp up their cybersecurity efforts. We saw a lot of firms do this in response to the heightened risk of hacking from the war between Ukraine and Russia. But is it a trend that investors can get involved in? Dan spoke to Morgan Deladon, Head of Investment Strategy for Europe at Global X ETFs, to find out more. So it seems every day we're getting cyber attacks. Recently, we've had um, an attack on an NHS supplier. There's been one with Holiday Inn Hotels and the bus company go ahead. Obviously, this sort of backdrop is actually positive for companies who specialize in cybersecurity. And it's no wonder that lots of investors want to find ways to invest in this space. GlobalX is one of the companies that offers um, an ETF or a tracker fund that follows the performance of a basket of companies related to this theme. So I'm pleased to welcome Morgan Deladon to chat about this theme. So Morgan, thanks ever so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, Should we start just by looking at the, the broader space? If the backdrop is very positive, but certainly quite a lot of the big names the individual stocks haven't really sort of moved too much this year do you have a sort of a view of why sort of cyber related companies are, are not sort of racing ahead if, if the backdrop is so good well it's it's an important point you, you you're making here daniel because it's it's really showing um how investors believe in this structural trend and they um, invest in the future. This is a forward-looking investment approach because it's uh, cybersecurity is still in its early stage. Um, And the pickup in terms of uh, demand for it, and that has been reflected into net inflows into cybersecurity themes using ETFs in the beginning of the year. It's the second um, it's the second theme by uh, net inflows um, from from the beginning of the year. Uh, so lots of interest, uh, obviously driven by um, by the geopolitical context, but also all the attacks you you mentioned. Um, but what people invest in is um, is more of a 
of an investment as a hedge. A hedge because we are going through a, a broad-based digitization of the economy and all the companies and sectors are now at risk of being um, being attacked um, because of, um, of the cyber risks. And so um, having an exposure to uh, cyber security is, um, is mostly a defensive play against uh, these risk of attack uh, at a corporate level, but also geopolitical attack. And we, we've seen um, how uh, cybersecurity themes um, and ETFs have uh, responded positively in the aftermath of uh, the Toyota um, uh, alleged attack, cyber attack, uh, back in last year, uh, but also how uh, cybersecurity funds performed in the aftermath of cyber attacks under the context of the Russian war. And Russian-Ukrainian war. So I would say investors are really taking a, a long-term view on this theme instead of looking at a very short-term uh, market opportunities and 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 I would say more um, companies opportunities. It's more investing into a theme. Yeah, I mean it's certainly an interesting place for corporate takeovers um, on the London Stock Exchange. Dark Trace recently received a bid, and although sort of deal didn't go through we have seen other names like avast and barracuda acquired i mean why do you think is that um there are some companies including private equity who are happy sort of perhaps to pay quite a high price to to buy these companies they, they must clearly be seeing big opportunities in the future well, it's it's definitely a dynamic uh, market. Um, this is also a very fragmented market. Um, the the security market is uh, is widely widely fragmented. Uh, the largest company uh, is probably fifty or sixty billion uh, as its market cap, um, and. Today, um, we are seeing, um, uh, we, we do expect the industry to cons consolidate rapidly uh, with potentially four or five major players in the market. And, and what we're seeing is um, increasing integration, vertical integration of uh, cloud companies uh, to, to kind of acquire cybersecurity expertise through MA activities on, uh, on, on uh, cybersecurity companies. Um, so we, we do see um, this integration uh, continue to be a quite of a, an interesting trend for both themes, uh, which are becoming um, increasingly uh, overlapping uh, in, in the recent years. Yeah, but I think one of the downsides to investing in the sort of cybersecurity space is we don't actually know a lot of what these cybersecurity companies are doing. Uh, you know, the contract pricing is not sort of um, not transparent. You know, they don't really get the granular detail of what exactly they're doing for the client, apart from they're they're just protecting their systems. And I think in the world of investing, people like to know what's going on. They like transparency. Do, do, do you think that this is a is a really big negative for anyone looking at the space, and perhaps that they need to understand that you know. They they are just investing in theme, but they may not get the type of information that they they might get from, say, for a manufacturer or a retailer. Well, the space by nature is more difficult to analyze than um, a, a typical industrial sector uh, because it's 
the sophistication of the cyber attacks, which dictate uh, the, the sophistication of the response and the protections needed by go companies and governments. Uh, and therefore, there, there is still this reaction function between cyber attacks and, and protection that comes later on from like learning from, from past events that will still be um, uh, quite an important driver of innovation in the cybersecurity um, companies and this sector. But yes, there is this um, uh, always this type of uh, reaction to, to events to, to learn more and to improve uh, processes and to improve uh, protection. So in terms of transparency, I think we can't be more transparent than that. It's, it's really driven by sophistication. Um, and today, I think what really matters in, in the cybersecurity uh, space is that um, the number of companies and governments and individuals uh, with access to cloud services, with access to connected devices, with uh, digital um, supply chains and digital infrastructure will increasingly need protection. And most of the knowledge learned by cybersecurity companies is potentially um, large enough uh, to cover most of the uh, daily attacks. So it gives uh, a level of protection that is not um, completely um, secure because there can always be, always be a, a, an innovation on the cyber attack uh, that couldn't be um, expected. Uh, but large, the, the vast majority of, of attacks can be uh, prevented by um, by having these um, cyber cyber security companies services in place. So I would say that in terms of what matters to investors is the business model. Um, the business model for these companies are almost like subscription model. So it's a recurring income model um, that makes them quite stable uh, as a, as a business plan uh, for for investors to to continue to invest in the space. And. I mean, I think the the issue with quite a lot of technology companies is that they, they've got they've got bright ideas um, and good good technology, but to stay ahead of the game, they constantly have to reinvest their money, and and quite a lot of tech names don't make a profit. Um, I, I'm not sure what the situation is with cybersecurity, but I would imagine that there's there's quite a lot of these names um, that don't make any money, and if they do, it's it's very small, and there's constant pressure on. Uh, you know their business to to try and reinvest any any money they've got. Is this perhaps another thing that people should think about if they are looking to invest either directly in stocks or, or perhaps through a, an ETF such as the one that you offer? Absolutely, there is a connection between the stage of adoption of a theme and its profitability. Um, this is why we're talking here about more of the growth. Growth uh, stock profiles. Um, so um, investors are actually paying for future sales growth. Um, and as you said, most of the current uh, income are reinvested uh, into uh, research and development to to um, uh, to create and uh, to innovate in the space and continue to grow. But I think now we have reached a point where there is. Um, um, a mass accept, uh, acceptance of the theme because um, just uh, to give you a few numbers, but the uh, global security spending um, has increased uh, 
tremendously over the past years and it's expected to continue to increase from about 125 billion to over 175 billion by 2024 uh, at a global level. Um, today, we are seeing an acceleration of these growth in terms of the usage of, of cybersecurity services, because can you imagine that just only one third of the total workload currently is in the cloud computing technology? But as we move to more hybrid type of work and, and, and the, the economy and governments become more digitalized, the, the base, um, the consumer base for these cybersecurity companies is ex it's growing exponentially. So um, this is really um, a scheme that is at the stage where its shape, uh, its its uh, its curve of adoption uh, really looks like um, a very steep uh, is on a very steep path because we're not there uh, we're not uh, we have not arrived to um, a mature market yet but uh, given the the amount of spending in the space that will propel propel some uh, research and development and therefore innovation and at the same time you have more users so you have two main tailwinds for uh, for these themes to continue to grow over the next four to five years. Well, Morgan from Global X, thank you ever so much for joining us and talking about cybersecurity. That's everything for this week. Thanks very much for joining us. And don't miss next week's show. I'm going to be talking to an expert who is investing in the energy efficiency projects. So uh, until then, thank you very much for listening. I'll catch you next time. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.